Chapter Thirteen of the Harbor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Harbor by Ernest Poole. Chapter Thirteen. They sailed the middle of March. It is easy to look back now and smile at my small, desolate self as I was in the months that followed, but at that time it was no smiling matter. I was intensely wretched, and I had a right to be, for I could see nothing whatever ahead but the most dire uncertainties. Did Eleanor really care for me? I didn't know. When could I ask her? I didn't know. For when would I be earning enough to ask any girl to marry me? At present nearly all I earned was swallowed up by expenses at home, and I knew that in all likelihood this drain would soon grow heavier. For we could not count much longer on my father's salary. Already I had done my best to make him give up his position. He stubbornly resisted. I'm strong as I ever was, he declared, and he took great pains to prove it. He would sit down to dinner, his face heavy and gray with fatigue, but by a hard visible effort slowly he would throw it off, keenly questioning me about my work, more often quizzing me about it, or sue about her revoluters. He had a stock of these dry remarks, and he used them over and over. When the same jokes came night after night we knew he was very tired. After dinner on such evenings, when I went with him into his study to smoke, he would invariably settle back in his chair with the same loud, ah, of comfort, and he would follow this up as he lit his cigar with the most obvious grunts expressive of health to prove to me how strong he was. He was always grimly delighted when I spent these evenings with him, but always before his cigar was out his head would sink slowly over his book and soon he would be sound asleep. Then as I sat at my writing I would glance over from time to time. I could tell when he was waking, and at once I would grow absorbed in my work. Soon I would hear a slight snort of surprise, I would hear him stealthily feel for his book, and then presently, out of the silence, "'This is a devilish good piece of writing, boy,' he would announce abruptly. "'When you learn to hold your reader like this I'll begin to think you're a writer.' Yes, my father was aging fast. I would soon be the only breadwinner here. Sue fought hard against this idea, she was still set on finding work for herself, but each time she proposed it Dad would rise so indignantly, with such evident pain in his glaring old eyes, that she would be forced to give up her plan. In such talks I supported him, and in return when we two were alone Sue would revenge herself on me by the most cutting comments on this inane habit of looking at girls as fit for nothing better than marriage. These comments, I was well aware, were aimed at my feeling for Eleanor, for whom Sue had no longer any good word but only a smiling derision. Her remarks were straight out of Bernard Shaw's most ribald works, and they left me miserably wondering whether any man had ever loved in any way that wasn't the curse or the joke of his life. Sue dwelt on this glorious age of deep radical changes going on. She spoke of Joe Kramer, with whom she still corresponded, and enlarged on the wonderful freedom he had to go anywhere at any time. Thank a merciful heaven he wasn't tied down. 
and if Joe would only keep his head and not marry, not get a huge family on his hands. Sue made me perfectly wretched. In this frame of mind I again tackled the harbor. Dylan had told me to cover it all, and this I now set out to do. On warm, muggy April days I tramped what appeared to me hundreds of miles, but the regions that from Eleanor's boat had somehow had a feeling of being one great living thing, now on these dreary trudging days, fell apart into remote bays and slips and rivers, hours of weary travel apart, and each without any connection with any other that I could see. Railroad tracks wound in and out with no apparent purpose, dirty freight boats crawled helter-skelter this way and that, all seemed a meaningless chaos and jam. And still worse, as I wrestled with this confusion I found it was growing stale to me. In those spring days I was fagged and dull, my imagination would not work. And this gave me a scare. I must not grow stale. I must keep right on making money to meet the bills that were still piling up at home. And so for a Sunday paper I undertook a series on The Harbor from a Police Boat. This sounded rather exciting, and I hoped that it might restore the lost thrill. The harbor that it showed made fine Sunday reading. Out of its grim waters dead bodies bobbed, dead faces leered, the sodden ends of mysteries. I wrote them and got paid for them, and I felt no thrill but only disgust. I made some more money out of rats, rats in countless ravenous hordes that had a harbor world of their own. This world extended for hundreds of miles in the dark chill places under the wharves, and the rats kept gnawing, gnawing, and slowly with the help of the waves they wore away to splinters and pulp the millions of beams and planks and piles. I found that entire mountains were denuded each year of their forests to supply food for the rats and the ocean here. I was almost a muckraker now. Meanwhile I had gone in June to the South Brooklyn waterfront and had taken a room in a tenement near the end of a dock peninsula which jutted out into the bay, for I wanted to live in the very heart of the big port's confusion, to grapple alone with the chaos out of which Dillon's engineers were striving to bring order. Here I lived for weeks by myself, taking my meals in a barroom below. There were no stately liners here. The North River piers with their rich life had been like a showroom. I had come down into the factory now. I could see them still, those liners, but only in the distance steaming through the narrows. Eleanor had gone that way. Here, close around me, were grimy yards with heaps of coal, enormous sheds, and inland one of the two narrow mouths of the crowded Erie Basin, out of which slid ugly freighters through the dirty water. Like the ancient mariner I sat there dully on the pier watching the life of the ocean go past, and I would try to jot it down. But soon I would stop. All right, who cares? The punch was gone. It grew hot and the water smelt, and I was as blue a reporter of life as ever chewed his pencil. But life has a way of punching up even a stale young writer. In the rooms above mine lived a man and his wife who quarreled halfway through the night. Night after night they railed at each other, until one horrible night of screams, in the middle of which I heard the man come running downstairs. He banged at my door. "'Come in,' I cried morosely. 
a big figure entered the dark door. "'Look here,' said a rough, frightened voice. "'Get up and get dressed and run for a doctor, will you, son? I'm in a hell of a hole.' "'What's the matter?' "'My woman is having a baby, that's what,' he answered fiercely. "'We wasn't expecting it so soon, and there ain't a single doctor in miles. But there's a night watchman with a phone down there in the dockshed. "'All right, old man, I'll do my best.' "'Say,' he shouted after me as I hurried down the stairs, "'if you know a damn thing about this business, come back here the minute you're phoned. I'm in the hole, brother, a hell of a hole.' I came back soon, and within a few minutes after I came I saw a baby born. I did not sleep that night. My mind was curiously clear. I had had the jolt that I needed from life, its agony and bloody sweat, its mystery. It was not dull. It was not stale. The only trouble lay in me. I must find a new angle from which to write. Why not try becoming one of the workers? The man upstairs was a tug captain, and grateful to me for what help I had given. He now agreed to take me on his tug, where there was plenty of simple work which I did for a dollar a day and my board. And at once I felt a difference. The light work steadied my overwrought nerves and unlocked my mind which had set tight, and now at last I began to see my way out of the jungle. For the tug belonged to a row of piers about a mile to the southward. Brand new gigantic piers they were, with solid rows of factory buildings on the shore behind them, all owned by one great company, which rented floors or parts of floors to hundreds of manufacturers here. The raw materials they required were landed from barges or ships at the piers and delivered to their doors at once, and their finished products were conveyed in the same way to all parts of the world. Here was a key to the future port of ordered combination that Eleanor's father was working toward. Here was the place I must write up before he came back from abroad, to show him that I had found it. And the very certainty of this increased my exasperation. For even still I could not write. Doggedly I worked at night up there in my room in the tenement, but I wrote the most tedious, dismal stuff which I would tear up savagely. Inanely I would pound my head as though to put punch into it. But another miracle happened to me. On one of those enormous piers, roofed over, dim and cool inside, I stood one day looking out on the deck of an East Indian freighter, where two half-naked Malays were polishing the brasswork. One of them was a boy of ten. His small face was uncouth and primitive, almost as some little apes, but I saw him look up again and again with a sudden gleaming expectancy. I grew curious and waited. Now the looks came oftener, his every move was restless. And after a time another boy, a little New York newsie with the pack of evening papers, came loitering along the pier. Unconcernedly up the gangplank he went, while the melee crouched in his corner, rigid and tense, his black eyes fixed. The white boy took no notice. Climbing up a ladder he sold a couple of papers to some officers on a deck above and then he went down again to the dock. Presently one of the officers yawned and threw his paper over the rail, and as it fell to the lower deck in an instant the melee boy was upon it, devouring its headlines and its pictures with his animal eyes, with one of his small bare brown feet upon the jeweled bosom of the latest Fifth Avenue divorcee. "'Where does that kid sleep?' I asked an officer. I was shown his bunk below, 
and there I found I had guessed right. For the side and the top and both ends of his bunk were lined with red headlines and newspaper pictures, all carefully cut and pasted on. Five of the New York giants were there. And as though the fresh, fierce hungriness had passed from that small heathen soul into my own, that day I again became a reporter of things to be seen in the port of New York. Back into the dockshed I went, and all up and down and in and out among piles of strange and odorous stuffs. And once more I felt the wonder of this modern ocean world. I followed this raw produce of Mother Earth's four corners back into those factory buildings ashore. I saw it made into chewing gum, toys, sofas, glue, curled hair, and wallpaper. I saw it made into ladies' hats, corks, carpets, dynamos, stuffed dates. I saw it made into dirt-proof collars and shirt-bosoms, salad-dressing, blackboards, corsets, and the like. Again I fairly reveled in lists of things and the places they came from, and the places to which they were going. I saw chewing gum start for Rio and Quaker Oats for Shanghai, patent medicine for Nabat, curled hair for Yokohama, movie theater seats for Sydney, tomato soup for Cape Town, and corsets for Rangoon. From Everywhere to Anywhere was the title of my article. It took only a week to write, and was ready when the Dillons came home. End of chapter 13. Recording by Tom Weiss.